Uh, thanks, Mar and Joseph. Uh, really appreciate you guys. Uh, we're obviously here to worship Jesus, but just want to honor you guys. Say thank you for uh, serving us. All right. Um, if you guys have Bibles, or if you guys have your journals, roll to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. And uh, I'm gonna pray, and then we'll dive into uh, our time of teaching. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the fact that your love is higher and deeper and wider and more um, comprehensive than we could ever know, that it touches more of us than we realize, um, and we need it more than we realize. And so thank you that you meet our needs um, in Jesus. And Lord, I just pray this morning that you'd speak through me and in spite of me as we take a look at this precious letter um, that that was written to precious people um, as I preach to, to people who are also precious to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, hey guys, if you're new, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. If you are new, it's a fairly good time to be new because we're in a new series uh, in the book of Romans called Gospel Depth. Uh, Gospel Depth. And it's the idea that the message of Jesus, the good news, the gospel is deeper than we know. We talked about this idea that based on how 2020 went, like we need refreshments. Uh, we need encouragement, and there's nothing more refreshing or empowering than the gospel of Jesus to refresh our soul. We also talked about how um, we're kind of replanting our church like it was a wild year. We're just kind of getting back at it. Uh, and so um, whenever we plant a church, we planted four churches out of this church. We always tell the guys and, and gals we send out, we say, hey, man, start with the gospel and then build on that. That's the foundation. And so we took our own advice and said, in a season where we're kind of replanting, it'd be good to refocus in um, on just this core teaching, this core doctrine, this core um, reality of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means for our lives, all right? So last week I talked about how the Apostle Paul, um, he wrote this letter to the church at Rome. Uh, we read in verse 1. Um, how he is, he, he is a servant of Jesus, that Paul wrote this letter, uh, and that he, be, he went from being a guy who looked down on people as kind of a self-righteous religious person to a person who got underneath people to lift them up. He became a servant of Jesus, and how he used to be set apart for performance-based pharisaical religion, and now he is set apart for the gospel of grace. And so um, to, to dive in today, I wanted to reread verse 1, because it, obviously it's, it's a letter. Those, uh, you know, the chapter and verses weren't in your original Bible, just so you guys know, it was just a letter. And so uh, they're obviously connected. And so I want to start at verse 1 and then jump into the connecting point in verse 2 and on into today's text. All right, so uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, right? an, that's a messenger, and set apart for the gospel of God, which, and so uh, when Paul says the gospel of God, which, he's about to tell us something about the gospel, okay? Uh, the gospel of God, um, which is, right? Um, and so uh, when Paul writes, I was set apart for the gospel, um, which, and then he gets to these statements about the gospel, that kind of um, really uh, sets up my outline for today, all right? Um, it sets it up pretty well. So, so a couple key things, spoiler alert, we're talking about the gospel, all right, and so three things I want to talk about today. Number one, what some characteristics of the gospel are. Two, who Paul wants to bring that gospel to. And three, what that gospel does, all right? So number one, what some characteristics of the gospel are. Two, who Paul wants to bring that gospel to. And three, what that gospel does. Uh, so number one, what some characteristics of the gospel are, all right? There's three things I want to look at. The first one is this. Uh, if you read Romans chapter one, verse two, it's, it says, apart from the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God through the spirit 
of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And some characteristics of this gospel are, number one, it's predicted in the Old Testament. It's predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Many people don't realize this, but the entire Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 21 is all about Jesus. You can struggle to see that if you just read the Bible as as if it's kind of a mismatch uh, a collection of stories or moral teaching or wisdom removed from an overarching theme or what scholars call a meta narrative that connects it all together. But the Bible is and always has been all about Jesus. Uh, Brian Chappell, he's a scholar, seminary professor. He writes this about interpreting scripture in light of Jesus. He says, in, in its context, every passage of scripture possesses one or more of four redemptive foci, redemptive foci. And the foci are this, the text may be predictive of Christ, preparatory for Christ, reflective of Christ, or resultant of Christ. Predictive, preparatory, reflective, or resultant. So let me unpack that for you. The text may be predictive of the work of Christ, all right? So in the Old Testament, there's a ton, some would say a grip, of prophecies. Uh, prophecies, for example, that the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem hundreds of years before the Messiah was born. Prophecies that predict that he would die by crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. There's a very detailed prophecy in Zechariah that predicted a king who would come into Jerusalem riding a donkey who would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And we can go on and on. There are 300 other specific prophecies in the Old Testament that tell us the time, place, character, and ministry of the Messiah. Those prophecies have been used by the Holy Spirit to convince many skeptics of the trustworthiness of the scriptures, all right? So, so there's prophecies about Christ written thousands to hundreds of years in advance. There's also stuff that, that aren't prophecies, but they're preparatory for the work of Christ. So, so as you read the Old Testament, for example, there's the offering system. There are sacrifices that have to be made. There is the, um, there's the temple where, where kind of man and God meet. There are priests who represent the people uh, to God. There are kings who never live up to their role that make us hunger for a better king or a better leader. All throughout the story of Israel in the Old Testament, we're being prepared for the work of Jesus on our behalf. See, people like Joseph, who, um, who though betrayed, use their uh, power to bless their enemies and forgive their enemies. So, so that's preparatory for the work of Christ. Um, the other two are in the New Testament. So one's reflective of the work of Christ, uh, this actually, these are like the Gospels. They actually describe Jesus' life, death, teaching, resurrection. Um, uh, so, so accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. And then resultant of the work of Christ. And so here's what, what Chapel means by resultant of the work of Christ. Like the way disciples of Jesus are called to live as a result of what Jesus has done for them. Uh, most of that stuff's found in the epistles. Written by, you know, Peter, Paul, John, James. Um, um, kind of like because Jesus did this for you, do this in response to him. An example of this is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. It says, let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from among you, along with all malice. This is like a pandemic life verse right now. Verse 32, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So it's resultant of what Jesus did. So Paul says the gospel is predicted in the Old Testament, right? It's testified about in the scriptures, um, but he also says something else. He says um, in verse 3, the other thing the gospel is, is it's concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
He says the gospel concerns his son. So the gospel about his son was predicted in the Old Testament, but it, the second thing it should be is it centers on Jesus. It centers on Jesus. There are a lot of things churches and people who claim to be followers of Jesus build their life on. And if it's not Jesus, it's not the biblical gospel. All right, so, it's, it's, so the gospel is not centered on conservative or progressive politics. It's not centered on parenting styles. It's not, center, it's not centered on morality. It's not centered on the end times and who the Antichrist is. It's not centered on self-help. It's not, it's not even centered on God's love. It's not centered on spiritual gifts. The center of the gospel is not sexual orientation or race or socioeconomic status or the country we live in or gender roles or predestination. It's not even centered on the Enneagram. That was a joke, just so you know. The center of the gospel is Jesus and him alone. Like, that's it. Again, churches, leaders, and everyday normal followers of Jesus can confuse things that are, maybe even some of these things are good things. Some of these things are bad things. Some of the things that it's listed, uh, some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are, are morally neutral, um, but they're not the gospel. They're not Jesus. And so often when we confuse things that are a result of the gospel or are transformed by the gospel um, as, as saying that it is, whenever we do that, we get in trouble. Again, if Jesus isn't the center of your gospel, then Jesus isn't the center of your life. If Jesus isn't the center of your gospel, it also hurts our ability to reach people. Many people... Uh, rejected Christianity. That's what they would say when actually the message they rejected was a sad man-centered morality that was never preached by Jesus or his apostles. They rejected something completely different. So a way to tell if you're dealing with a false gospel is does this message make much of Jesus? Um, so continuing point one, the gospel was predicted in the scriptures. Two, it centers on the person and work of Jesus, which leads me to my third sub-point under what some characteristics of the gospel are. The gospel, rightly understood, leads to a life of obedience and love. The gospel, rightly experienced and understood, leads to a life of obedience and love. Paul writes in verse 5, Through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. And so Paul talks about this idea. He received a grace, God's unmerited favor, and God's unmerited favor and power that he didn't deserve, that he desperately needed. He was given that gift, and that gift didn't like lead to a life of just kicking it, uh, led to a life of, of, of a calling, of apostleship, of, of missionary work. He responded to what he did, but it's not just that grace led to him doing something. He talks about um, his apostleship exists to help people obey Jesus about the obedience of faith. And so we're not saved by obeying and having faith. That, uh, Paul's saying there's an obedience from faith um, that, that comes out. And so again, the gospel rightly understood, experienced and embraced, leads to a life of obedience and love. We see that in Paul's life, but he says that's also what I'm about in the lives of others. If they have faith, they'll respond by loving those around them. And so if he experiences grace, we will be transformed. Paul says the message of grace is a distinguishing characteristic of the gospel. Again, um, many people will say, man, all religions teach functionally the same thing. Just kind of be a good person, da da da, da. Um, But when people say that, you have to understand that they probably haven't studied said religions very much themselves. Um, uh, there's a good chance that they haven't done that. And again, um, by the way, our culture, and again, they don't apply that logic to other areas of their life. Like, they, they don't apply that epistemology to other areas, right? Our culture has turned politics into a religion, 
for example. So when people say that all religions are the same, you go, yeah, it's just like political parties. Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, same guy. I, I get where you're coming from. Same guy. They'll lose their minds, right? Like, no, no, no. They say, no, they both say, like, they like America, and they want, to, they want America to help people, and right, yada, yada, yada. Right, no, different people say different things, and that is true of, of faith systems. That's true of political platforms. Hopefully, they'll, they'll quickly see the logical inconsistency they're applying to the world of faith. Uh, probably not right away, all right? So grace is unique. Grace is unique to gospel-centered Christianity. This is uh, unique to, to any faith system in the world. Um, every faith or religion um, works off some variation of this premise, even those that don't believe in a God. Essentially, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel works the opposite. It says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. That is a stark distinction. Even faiths that don't believe in a God go, basically, my spirituality is based on my performance and what I do, um, not what, what someone else has done for me. Um, false gospels don't change people for the better because they're always rooted in legalism or license. Legalism says, I need to obey to get God to accept me. Licentiousness says, because God accepts me, I don't have to obey him. Author Andrew Boas says this. He says, the gospel does not lower Jesus' standard for his disciples like licentiousness does, nor does it demand that we meet those standards perfectly to stay in God's favor. Instead, it tells us that God's standards are higher than we could ever hope to live up to, and that Jesus met every single one of those standards perfectly in our place. This fills our hearts with love where we obey because we want to. I've been forgiven so much so I can forgive so much. I've been loved so well, I want to love others well. I have received a generosity I didn't deserve. I want to extend a generosity to others who don't deserve it. Again, legalism doesn't change lives for the better because guilt doesn't change anyone. Licentiousness doesn't change anyone's lives because it's just doing what you already want to do anyways. That's not going to change anything. And also disobeying the source of all wisdom, good, goodness, and beauty and truth uh, just doesn't work out great. So to review, uh, if a message is not rooted in the scriptures, it's not first and foremost about Jesus, and it doesn't lead to a changed life, um, you can pretty much guarantee it's not the gospel of Jesus. Um, also, real quick, I just want to say this. If you're experiencing life change, you'll probably want to share that with others. Uh, we do that in almost every area of our life. You look at social media. It's like if something works for you, uh, a financial plan, a dieting plan, a, um, a new restaurant you found, a new place you want to move, whatever it is, we tend to share the things that work for us. Um, and so a key to growing as an evangelist is just to be a growing Christian. It's not about a personality type. It's not about like a weird sales pitch. It's like live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, own it when you don't. Don't be a hypocrite. And people go, wow, you've got something I don't have in a world pretty devoid of love and joy and peace and patience and self-control right now. Um, people will be asking you to share the gospel with them if you live your life that way. I promise. I'm not saying they're all going to come to know Jesus, but they will be intrigued. Um, most of the people that meet Jesus at our church ask to come. <laughs> they ask their Christian friends if they could come. Uh, they didn't get pressured into Easter uh, or something like that. Usually it was like, hey, I, I've been wanting, am I allowed to come? Some of you guys are here. Uh, you're like, hey, are we allowed to come? Or can, can I come? Because I want something of what you have. And so the Spirit takes the lives of believers um, that are distinct, lives that, uh, again, we're called to be salt and light. When we bring light into darkness, or again, what does salt do? It changes the flavor of something. We, we should change the flavor of the environments which we find ourselves in. You know, man, when you're around, things are more stable. They're better. 
I'm interested in, 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 in why that is, all right? So, so, so these are some, some, some components of, of the gospel. But number two, and again, Paul's going to move from kind of lofty theology that describes aspects of what the gospel contains to the warm rea- relational reality of who he wanted to preach that gospel to. All right? Uh, so number two, who he wants to bring the gospel to? We'll see. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. It says, To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. We're pretty confident Paul has never been to this church. For I, very, for I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, Paul saying every human ever. Verse 15, so also I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So now Paul's going to say who he wants to bring the gospel to. Two things I want you to catch about that passage, okay? The first thing I want you to catch is Paul loves the Roman church, even though he has never met them. He digs them. He's proud of them. Likely it was started by someone he discipled, but either way, there's this familial connection that doesn't make sense in the natural, that Jesus has made them family. The gospel gives us family we don't even uh, know yet. Have you guys ever experienced that? Um, I've experienced this in Ireland and in Indonesia and in South Africa and in Dubai and in India and France and Mexico and Northern Africa. And when I've been in spaces and places with other people who claim to be followers of Jesus, there is a unique connection that does not make sense on paper. I remember uh, early last year, the last trip before COVID hit, um, I flew into Turkey. I got into Istanbul. My flight was delayed. I got in really late. I, was, I got in about 1130 at night and I, I uh, grabbed a, a bit taxi. I think it's what it's called. Uh, it's like the Uber of Turkey at the time. And they took me to a house of a man I'd never met before, a man named Mark. Uh, I got there uh, late. I'm not going to say his last name, but this man uh, serves as uh, a gospel worker in Istanbul with his wife. Uh, you know, largest city in Europe, kind of crossroads, Middle East, Africa, Russia, Europe. Um, it's a Muslim-majority nation. Uh, it's late at night. I'm 15-hour flight from home. Um, I'm tired. I'm cranky. Um, and I show up at this house, and this guy, Mark, welcomes me in. Um, he makes me dinner. Uh, his wife uh, gives me some medicine. They listen to my story. I listen to some of theirs. Um, we pray for each other. Um, I don't know them and they didn't know me, but we both knew Jesus. Now, I did know someone that they did know. Uh, this guy, Mark, used to be in college ministry at a school in the Midwest uh, where he discipled a quirky college student named Joseph Yasso, all right? So Joseph, Joseph connected, right? Jesus made Joseph and Mark family, right? And he'd already made Mark and I family. We just hadn't discovered each other yet. 
Uh, my dad's the youngest of 11 kids. I have a grip of cousins I have never met. Every time I go to the East Coast, I meet people I didn't know I was related to. Uh, the gospel gives you a family like that that's ever-growing uh, in the weirdest ways. Last night, we had a, um, a, a little, a very small backyard birthday thing for Maria, uh, and my kids uh, kind of dominated it. Um, but, they, um, but, but they've talked about how she feels like their auntie. She feels like their um, they're family, and she's only been here a year uh, unexpectedly. And we just see how there's family we didn't know that we had. Um, the second thing I want you to catch, so, so Paul l- loves this church even though he doesn't know them, okay? Um, do, do you have a love for believers you do know? And maybe you go, it's easier to love believers I don't know because they're a theory. I don't have their problems. But do you, do you love, the, the scripture is so clear that, that we should love the people Jesus loves, and he, he really does love his church. He loves the world, but he loves his church in a special way. He laid down his life for her. I remember a story of a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Rob. He leads a church in Dubai, and he was um, going to uh, help a friend of his who had planted a church in Zimbabwe. Um, and um, long story short, uh, Rob and his son um, in Dubai, they, cra- they were in a car accident, crashed their car. Uh, him and his son, his son had to be life flighted in a helicopter to the hospital in Dubai. It was a day before they were supposed to go to Zimbabwe. As you can imagine, the trip was canceled. About nine months later, um, Rob uh, heads down to Zimbabwe, and when the car pulls up, uh, people are running out to the car, uh, and they are so excited, um, and then they are confused, and they're just, they're just asking, where is Rob, where is Rob, where is Rob? Everyone in this church, it's like, I don't know, 50, 60 people, where is Rob, where is Rob, where is Rob? And the thing that was funny, um, they just look at, long story short, they, they just go, um, they, they look at Rob and go, is Rob dead? He's like, I'm Rob. He's like, you're Rob. He's like, yeah. And, and he didn't have a beard. He grew out a beard. He didn't have a beard before. And they said, man, we heard about your car accident. These guys prayed and fasted for a week that God would, would save you and your son, even though they didn't know him. And he said, then when they realized he was alive, they all lost it and were clapping and crying and, and da, da, da. But, but man, when's the last time you pray or fasted for anything for a day? <laughs> for a week, for someone they didn't even know. There's this, there's this familial love that, that, that doesn't um, make sense, but it does make sense in, um, in the gospel that, that Jesus turns um, enemies into family, never mind strangers. Paul has that in there. He also assumes he has gifts to give them, and he assumes that, that the church has gifts to give him, not financial gifts, spiritual gifts, emotional gifts, blessings, manifestations of uh, grace. He's not like, hey, I'm the leader, right? He's like, no, like, I'm the leader, but like, I'm going to have some stuff for you for sure, but, but, but you also have some stuff for me. Um, we can be mutually encouraged. So he wants to preach to the church at Rome. Who's the gospel for? The church at Rome. But the other thing I want to catch is who at the church of Rome does he want to preach to? Like, oh, he's going to bring the gospel. And whatever, it's like a revival meeting. He's like, hey, bring your friends. Bring your friends. The apostle Paul's coming to town. Um, that's not the case. He wants to preach to people who are already followers of Jesus. Have you guys caught that? People already have faith. In verse 7, he calls them saints. Calls them the beloved sons and daughters of God the Father, to those who are disciples of their master, the Lord Jesus. And they're not just any Christians either. It says in verse 8 that these are not just run-of-the-mill disciples. They're people whose faith is so strong that stories about their faith are being reported all over the known world. It's like that church in Zimbabwe, right? I'm telling you about this now. Um, they, they had stories like that of faith. So this is a special church that already has faith. So in this text, Paul assumes Christians need the gospel as much as, Christian, as, as non-Christians do. But why, right? It seems so basic. Paul, the gospel was so last year, bro. 
Dude, we got it, bro. We, we get it. We get it. And the reason is, is we, we are prone to forget the gospel. We're prone to water it down and make it less than a gospel message, like I mentioned earlier. We're prone to what Elise Fitzpatrick calls gospel amnesia, that we forget the good news of the gospel. And all throughout Scripture, by the way, God's people have forgotten what he has done for them. In, in the Old Testament, right, there's this, uh, I, I, there's this insane moment. Uh, there's the Passover, and there's the, um, right, there's the Exodus. Like, I don't know how often, like, you see, like, God part oceans, and you walk through, like, how often that happens in your life. But within a few weeks, they're like, let's worship an idol. <laughs> now, prior to that happening, um, there was the, the, the Passover meal and the Passover sacrifice, and it was designed to be done yearly so they would remember what God had done for them, that he had saved them by the blood, not by their efforts or worthiness. It was built into the fabric of Israelite society, the Passover, and the Passover meal, remembering what God had done for them. In the book of Joshua, uh, they, they cross uh, another um, river. Uh, they cross a river, and, and they, they put down stones in remembrance. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus at a Passover meal says, actually, I fulfill what the Passover has always been about. I am the lamb without blemish, without sin. I'm going to lay down my life for you. My blood's going to be poured out for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, we're called to take communion because we are forgetful and we need something to help us remember. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter describes gospel forgetfulness among disciples of Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, familial affection, and brotherly affection with love. Pretty good qualities. Verse 8 says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure. So you're becoming um, more godly, more loving. You have more self-control, more knowledge. If you're increasing in those qualities, uh, it says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So they're helpful as a disciple. But verse 9 says this, the person who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from their past sins. So when we forget the gospel, we stop growing. The gospels aren't just the, the ABCs of our faith. It's the A to Z of our faith that, that you never hit a point where you don't need Jesus. You never get to a spot where, where, you, where you, um, you've grown out of your need for him or his grace, either forgive you or to empower you. One old school preacher, uh, he, he said, um, don't forget the one who brought, uh, dance with the one who brought you to the dance. Dance with the one who brought you to the dance. I don't know if you guys remember this uh, back in high school. It might be traumatic for you to think about, right? But dance season comes around. Who are you going to go with? Homecoming. Who are you going to go with? Who are you going to invite? You, you want to invite this, you know, you're going to invite a girl. Your friend's like, hey, I actually already invited her. Like, you invited her? I was going to invite her, right? Then she goes with you instead. Then you got a problem, right? You got weird, uh, it's a love triangle, but it's not a love triangle because it's not even a relationship. It's a dance and it gets stressful and ah, right? And then what happens the night of is who dances with who, right? Uh, and, and so um, the, uh, the idea here is um, dance with the one who brought you, that Jesus is the one who brought you into the kingdom. It wasn't your works or your performance or your ethics or your awesomeness or your spiritual gifting that got you into this kingdom. It was him. Stay close to him. We can make Christianity so freaking weird. It can become the weirdest, saddest religion ever, 
when you take Jesus out of it. The Bible without Jesus is weird, guys. The Pharisees had the Bible without Jesus. It was, it was sad. It was what everyone in our culture thinks Christianity is, and it isn't. It should be the freest people in the world. But we've got to stay close to the gospel. Number three, what the gospel did in Paul. What he thinks it does in others and why he thinks it's important. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. We talked about that last week. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. It's not that the Jews are more important. It's that um, God revealed himself to Israel before he did to everyone else in redemptive history. And by the way, he says he did it because they were so weak and small that he would get the glory. It wasn't because they were, it's not that they're better. It was just the order. Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Again, faith in the New Testament, the Greek word for faith is, is, is it's synonymous with the word, it's a, the word for trust. Faith can feel very spiritual and ethereal. Uh, just think, do you trust something or not? Do you trust the chair you're sitting in to hold you up? I've been in spaces where I knew it wouldn't and it was terrifying, right? You know, any moment, I'm going to be embarrassed, right? I'm going to be on my back. Do you have trust that your car is going to make it? I was talking to Felipe last night. He told me a story. A friend of his one time was like, hey, man, you want to drive with me an hour away on a, on a donut? A kid in high school didn't have a lot of wisdom. Uh, he, he, right? he had a, uh, you know, a spare tire. Uh, and he goes, no, nah, man, I'm good. And he said later on that day, the car flipped. Right? So Felipe rightly didn't trust that that car was going to go where it needed to go. Right? Um, so trust is going, no, I do think I trust in whatever this, you know, this thing is. So the gospel in Paul, um, he believes it can do amazing things, that it is as powerful as dynamite spiritually. And if we trust in it, but we have to continue to trust due to it. It's from faith to faith. We continue to trust in Jesus. We continue to dance with the one who, who brought us. But Paul said of this gospel that we keep needing, that we keep needing to trust in, he's not ashamed of it. And, and you might wonder, why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? It's such a beautiful message, which, by the way, you haven't read all of Romans 1 if you're wondering in today's culture why it might get a little weird. But, man, why would it be? It's such a beautiful message. And here's why people might be ashamed of it is the response of the people they are preaching to could cause them to, to pull back a little bit or shrink back or feel ashamed or awkward. For example, if your audience believes they need the gospel, it will be a beautiful message to them. However, it's only a beautiful message if they believe sin is dangerous and destructive and they can point to its damaging effects in their lives and in their relationships. Again, we see this in other areas of our lives, this logic, right? Um, and by the way, I, I, I don't want this to get weird or controversial. It's just an illustration, okay? Just an illustration. Say this with me, one, two, three. It's just an illustration, okay? COVID, all right? COVID, your view of COVID impacts your view of COVID restrictions. Have you guys noticed that? Like if you think COVID's a hoax, there's some people all the way out on, right? You're not down with the restrictions at all. If you think it's, it's, if you think it's wildly overblown and unnecessary, um, the restrictions will seem foolish to you, maybe even enraging, okay? On the flip side, if you believe that, that the virus is dangerous and it, and it is dangerous to at-risk people and you see the numbers, right? And you, you go, man, this is way crazier than the flu or you had family members impacted by COVID. You may view the restrictions as wise and although inconvenient, you might even be grateful for them. Do you see how you, your view of the problem impacts your view of if a solution is necessary? By the way, I'm not here to debate restrictions. What we all have in common is no one likes them and um, no one lives up to them perfectly. So both sides relax, okay? 
No one likes them. No one lives up to them perfectly. But my point is this, is your view of the danger of the virus impacts your thinking that you need, um, you need help, you need restrictions, you need solutions. How you feel about the virus greatly impacts your feelings about potential solutions to that virus. Now, how you feel about God's solution to your sin problem is completely dependent upon if you believe in sin, that sin is a problem in the first place. Depending on who you're preaching to, they may actually hate the gospel message. Uh, in Tim Keller's commentary on Romans, he writes this about why we might be ashamed of the gospel as we seek to reclaim it in our modern culture. Essentially, why our society might push back on it today. The first one is this, is it tells us, he gives four reasons. The first reason people might push back on the gospel in our culture, our culture is that it tells us we're such spiritual failures that the only way to be saved is through a free gift. This offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them advantage over the less moral. Second, it tells us that we're so wicked that only the death of Jesus could save us. Save us. This offends the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity, or that we just need to get in touch with our inner beauty, right? our inner love. Third, it teaches us that, that all, so good, all so-called good, sincere people will not automatically make it into God's kingdom. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way if they're sincere. It says that God is the only one who can provide salvation, and if you're going to receive it, you have to do it his way. Lastly, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' serving and suffering, and we should expect the same in following him. A lot of times people present Christianity as, if you want your life to be happy and never hurt, sign up for Jesus. That's not the way of uh, Jesus uh, and the way that he saved us or the way that we're called to live as we follow him, right? This offends those who want salvation to be an easy life, right? Nice and comfortable. A lot of people view salvation as like an eternal retirement plan. It's nice to know I've got that security uh, and it'll be, you know, man, your life gets, gets it, it, there is a security but your life isn't inherently easier in this life. Jesus said, if they persecuted you, they'll persecute me. We're promised that it will be hard in this life. So Paul says, uh, and by the way, to not be ashamed of means you recognize that people might push back on it, but you still pro pro faithfully, lovingly proclaim it. You're not a jerk. You're not pushy. But you go, man, this is what I believe and why. You don't have to believe this, but I do believe this. Um, and I'm building my life on it. Um, Paul's like, I know this message offends all of us, but I'm not ashamed of it because I know, I know it, and it alone contains the power for new life. So Romans 1, again, the gospel can save anyone, versus, you see this in verse 16. It's the most inclusive message ever. We all have access to it if we have heard it. We all have access to respond. If we have access, then we're able to respond, right? We're, we're given that opportunity, but the gospel only saves those who believe or trust in Jesus, so it's very inclusive, like who wants in? But it's ex exclusive in that there's only one way in. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is able to save anyone, but only those who trust him will experience being reconciled to God. Now, again, culturally, this could be really offensive to us right now. Uh, it could seem like, uh, man, it's a really, um, you know, narrow way of thinking. And I was thinking about this, this idea this past week. I was booking a flight. Uh, I'm going to go to South Africa soon. And uh, I was booking a flight to go see Grant and Michelle. And um, I was thinking about planes, and the thing about planes, especially the kind that can fly 13 hours at a time, like the ones that'll take you, you know, across the ocean to Asia or Africa uh, or Europe, um, they have the capacity to get us almost anywhere. But they can only get us to the places we, we want to go if we board the plane. Like, I don't know if you've ever caught that. 
Uh, they, they've got great capacity, but our experience of that capacity, there it goes. They have the capacity to get me anywhere, but I have to trust the plane and the pilot and the airline enough to get on the plane to get where I can't go on my own naturally. Otherwise, the plane's ability to deliver me to a different space and place won't be something I experience. Again, now, it's not the plane's lack of ability to deliver me. It's my lack of faith if I don't get to that place. Faith is synonymous, again, with trust in the New Testament, right? I have to trust and board the plane. I have to trust it's not going to crash and trust that the pilots know how to fly and how to get where they say we're going. And it's the same thing with Jesus. He has the power to deliver any of us, but we'll only experience the deliverance if we trust him, if we get on board, if we let him do what only he can do. Religion is like me trying to fly or swim with my physical body to South Africa by myself. Like, man, I got, man, I got it. I'm feeling good. I, you know, I swam in high school. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I didn't, but just imagine, right? Imagine, I know you look at me, you think athlete, and I get that. But, um, right, I could run, I could swim, maybe hang, I don't know, get a, get a canoe, maybe I could row, right? I'm not going to be able to get there on my own without a lot of help, probably several rescues in between. So even someone like Michael Phelps, right, they might get a head start swimming across the Atlantic, but even before they've hit 1% of how far they'd have to swim to get to Durban, South Africa, they're going to need rescue or they're going to drown right? We need a power to take us to a place we cannot go on our own. Thankfully, God has made a way to get us where we need to be, to be brought near to him, is the, is, the, is the witness of the New Testament. Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves in his life, death, and resurrection. And so I want to close with this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. It says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So right now I want to call uh, Mar up, the, the worship team up. Have you experienced being delivered from one kingdom to another? Have you experienced Jesus transferring you to a place that you could not get on your own? Have you experienced his rescue? Do you know what it is to have your legs give out when you're trying to swim to a place you can't get to and you're rescued? Do you know what it's like to receive a grace you do not deserve, a love you could never earn, but, then you, but also a love you cannot lose? Because it's, it's based on his performance. It's based on his ability, not your own. And so right now I want to take communion to remember the fact that he did that for us. If you guys have your um, little packs, I don't know what to call these. are tricky to open. All right, now grab your styrofoam, okay? It's edible, dude, don't worry. Get, get your cup. I just want to pray real quick for us. Jesus, thank you that there is redemption in you. There's redemption in your blood that, that, that through your body, through your life, through your death, through your resurrection, you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for rescuing us through your work on our behalf. Thank you for delivering us to a kingdom we could never get to on our own. 
your kingdom, a kingdom you don't have to share with us, a kingdom we have rebelled against. Thank you that you're a king who doesn't crush us, but you offer us a pardon. You allow us into the kingdom even though we don't deserve it. And you teach us how to live a new life as citizens of that kingdom. And so thank you. Thank you that even though it's, it's exclusive, you're the only one who died for us. Thank you that you're inclusive, that you, you share what you did with us. You share your benefits with us. And so, Lord, I pray that we be a people who keep Jesus front and center, that we stay close to him. But remember, it's about him. It's not about us. It's not about our abilities. It's not about our performance. It's not about our past. It's not about our potential. It's about him and what he has offered us. Lord, I pray that, um, last thing I want to pray is that we would be a humble church. It breaks my heart to see such a thing as a self-righteous Christian. When Christians are people who are saying, I have no righteousness of my own, that's why Jesus gave me his gift righteousness. I'm trusting in his gift righteousness. I'm trusting in I'm loved and I don't deserve it. So I don't look down on people who I don't think don't deserve it. And so would we be humbled by your work on the cross, by your rescuing, delivering work. In your name we pray. Amen. Feel it to eat and drink.